Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. It is a wonderful blessing to be here with you this evening. It's my prayer that you have been uplifted and edified by our service tonight thus far. Uh, and we are going to enter into the teaching portion at this time and certainly hope that uh, you are edified by the things that we look at from God's Word tonight also. So we are going to wrap up a series that we've been doing on a case for the inspiration of the Bible. And in this series, we have looked at external and internal evidences related to showing that the Bible truly is the inspired Word of God. And it's not just ancient writings from different authors that put their own point of view into things, but it is God that inspired man to write. And so tonight's to- uh, topic or title is, If the Bible is True, Then What Now? And this is kind of the summary wrap-up and final question that we want to pose related to these issues that we've talked about in the inspiration of the Scriptures. All the things that we've talked about thus far, I'm going to tell you that I am convinced that the Word of God is inspired by God, that the Bible is inspired, that it's life-changing, that it makes an impact. And if that's true, then what does that mean for you and I? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's a spectacular claim for a book to make. It's spectacular because the Bible is claiming that it is literally the book, the guidebook, given by the one true and living God. And there are a lot of religions out there. There are a lot of ancient texts and texts that are considered to be religious texts. But the Bible makes this spectacular claim. But I believe that all the things that we've looked at thus far in this series has shown that that claim is backed up. And this is kind of a a recap of what we've talked about so far in this series. But in part one, we looked at the textual reliability of Scripture. In other words, we asked the question, can we believe that the words that we're reading on the page now are the same words that were written 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago? And the answer is yes. It dwarfs, the manuscript evidence does, any other ancient writing that we have. We have manuscripts that go back very, very close to early time of writing. We have an abundance of manuscripts that experts are able to show. What we're reading today is the same words that were penned two and 3,000 years ago. It's just been translated into English for us. In part two, we looked at prophecy. Talked about the fact that about 25% of the Bible was prophetic at the time in which it was written. And so if the Bible really cannot accurately predict futuristic events then that's one piece of evidence that would show that it's false. The reality is it is. It does. And it did. And we've shown that not just with internal evidence, but with external evidence. Hostile witnesses that wrote about things that were done by Jesus and miracles that were performed and those sorts of things. Amazing prophecy that's that's contained in Scripture. In part three, we talked about science and how even though there's this perception that science and the Bible are opposed to one another, that's not the reality that we see when we dig into the scientific evidences. We see a story about a created universe, a created world, a created people that matches what the Bible talks about. And we also see a lot of futuristic science that's in the scriptures that there's no way that mankind at the time of writing it would have known those things had it not been revealed by some supernatural being. And that's God. We talked in part number four about history and archaeology. And how that even though people make the claim that the Israelites never really existed and David and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and these patriarchs of the old time, they were just created to burnish Israel's history, that it's not true. That the archaeological record has proven that the house of David exists 
And many pieces of archaeology have shown that the events, the places, and people contained in the Old Testament, they're real, they're true, and accurate according to history. And then the writings from first and century, uh, first and second century writers that talk about Jesus and Christ and Christianity spreading and all those things, it's not made up. It happened. It's real. It's history. And then in part five, last time we looked at, is the Bible's message true? And we talked about the fact that the message that's contained within the book is consistent from start to finish. It tells a consistent message of God's creation, mankind's rebellion, God's grace in sending his son to save mankind. Our choice that we have of whether or not to accept that and the eternal destinations that exist for those who either accept or deny Jesus. And then we also looked at the life-changing power of that message and the fact that people went to their deaths for the message that they were preaching, that the apostles and many of the New Testament writers that wrote the things about Jesus, they were tortured and put to death for the things that they wrote. And if it was all false, if it was all fake, who would have really done that? So all of those things and much more that we've not had time to talk about convinces me 100% that the things that I'm reading in these 66 books that we call the Bible are true and they're real. And I hope that you are convinced of that tonight, whether from the things that we've talked about in this series or not, I hope that you are convinced that God is real and that the Bible is his word. And if that's true, then we must ask this question. If it's true, what now? The answer to that first off is that we must accept that God is real and that he has absolute authority in our lives. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. If the Bible is true, then this is true. We didn't evolve. The universe didn't start with the Big Bang. It was created by a loving God. God created it. He created it for him, through Jesus and for Jesus. And everything that exists in this universe, in this world, and in your life, belongs ultimately not to you or not to me, but to him. Talking about the authority of God, Psalm 103, 19 says, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. If the Bible is true, then not only did God create everything, but God owns everything. He is the creator and therefore the owner. It is his kingdom. We are under his authority. He can do whatever it is that he wants. Psalm 115, verse 3 says as much, But our God is in the heavens. He had done whatsoever he had pleased. You know, the reality is, as people, we like to think that we have the ability over our own life to be our own master, to be our own ruler, to own things. But in the reality of it, everything is owned by God. Everything belongs to him. He created it. If the Bible is true, we've got to acknowledge that, that God has authority over you and over me. And we don't like that sometimes in America in 2023. We're independent-minded. We don't want anybody above us. We control our own destiny. And there's truth in that. God has given us free will to make choices in our life. But at the end of the day, it's God's world, not ours. It's not mine. I don't own it. God does. Consider some of the stories that we find in the Old Testament. I want to ask you this question. Does God have the right to tell people what to do and what not to do? Back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, when he placed Adam and Eve there, and he said, don't eat of the fruit. Did God have the right to give them that rule? It's his world. Of course he had the right. And when they disobeyed him and they ate the fruit, did he have a right to cast them out to punish them for that? Well, he's God, isn't he? It wasn't Adam and Eve's world. It's God's world. What about Noah? Did God have a right to condemn the world 
by a, a giant worldwide flood when they turned against him and every thought of mankind was evil against God? Did God have the right to say, I'm done with you? He's God. He created it all. Did he have the right to extend grace to Noah and say, I want you to build a big ark and save yourself and your family? God can extend grace where he wants to extend grace. He's God. He can destroy if he wants to destroy. He can give life if he wants to give life. It all belongs to him. What about Abraham? Did God have a right to come to Abraham and say, I want you to leave your homeland. I'm not going to tell you where you're going, but I want you to just pack up and leave and put your faith in me. Well, it's God's world, so he had the right. Did he have the right to tell, to tell Abraham to take his son Isaac up onto that mountain and sacrifice him? It's a hard one, but it's ultimately God's world. So he has the right. And then, of course, he stopped it. He didn't let Abraham do that, but he's testing Abraham's faith. Did he God have the right to do that? He's God. Of course he did. What about Moses? Did God have the right to come to Moses in that burning bush at 80 years old and say, I want you to go back to Egypt, the place that you fled from, and you're going to help my people go from Egypt and be released from slavery? Did God have the right to do that? Well, sure. And even when Moses says, God, I'm not the guy. I'm not eloquent of speech. I can't talk well. I'm not the guy you want for this job. Did God have the right to say, no, no, Moses, you're the guy. You're going to go. Of course he did. He's God. It's his world. What about King Saul? King Saul, the first king of Israel, did God have a right to tell him that when he went against the Amalekites to utterly destroy everything? Did God have the right to do that? Well, sure. And when Saul disobeyed and kept some of the best stuff and some of the people alive, did God have the right to take the kingdom from them and say, it's not going to go to your son. I'm going to take it and give it to somebody else. It's God's world. Of course he has the right. What about King David? Did God have the right to punish King David after his sin with Bathsheba and tell him the sword was never going to depart from his house? Of course he did. And you know something about King David? He recognized that. He recognized the authority that God holds in this universe. And so even as David was getting ready to die and turn the kingdom over to his son Solomon, you know what David said in uh, 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 11? Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. David wasn't placing his faith in himself or even in his son. He was saying, God, ultimately, it's you. It's all about you because everything's yours. The reality, folks, is that it is God's world and we are living in it. And if the Bible is true, we've got to acknowledge it. And I want to ask you to be willing to acknowledge that tonight. That at the end of the day, you have free will to choose what you do in this life. But as it relates to this world, this universe, the future of it, as it relates to eternity, and where we'll spend our eternity, it is all up to God and what he has decided and chosen and the choice that he has presented to you and to me. He has the authority over it all. It's his world. If the Bible is true, not only do we have to acknowledge that God is real and his authority is, is supreme and over everything, we have to acknowledge that heaven and hell really do exist. And this is not a fun, popular teaching to teach about hell today. It's not. Most people don't want to think about hell. They want to pretend that heaven exists, but hell doesn't. And the reality is the scripture teaches both. And if the Bible is true, then that means both are real. Jesus said in Matthew 25, verse 46, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into life eternal. Jesus taught that there are two eternal destinations that any one of us could find ourselves in. One we call heaven. That's the place of life, of joy, of wonderful existence for eternity. The other place is called hell.
and that's a place of, place of death and destruction, an eternity away from God, separated from him. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus said, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You know why hell exists? It's a good question, right? Does it exist because God hates people and wants to torment people for eternity? Is that why? No. God created hell for a specific purpose. It was for the devil and his angels. So let's, let's think about the devil. Let's think about Satan. What did Satan do that provoked God to create this eternal place of damnation? Satan got lifted up with pride. Satan, as an angel from, uh, created by God as a good thing, used the free will that God had given him, lifted himself up in pride, and rebelled against the eternal God. Satan saw himself as equal or more important than God himself. And God, of course, cannot be overthrown by a creation. And so God created an eternal place of damnation and destruction to punish the angel that rose up and sinned. And that presented, of course, the first temptation to mankind in the garden. And that's why hell is there, and that's why it exists. A place for Satan, one who lifted himself up to equal or greater place than God. What do you think is going to happen to you and I if we lift ourselves up in our own mind? to believe that we are our own God, that God's authority does not apply to us. We're joining Satan. What we're doing, when we rebel against God and we make that choice, we're joining Satan. And God has stated, and Jesus stated in this passage, that not only Satan and his angels will exist there in that place we call hell, but also those that rebel against him will join them for eternity. We need to acknowledge that. Now, I want to tell you, it's easier to believe that hell's not real. And you'll visit with people sometimes, and one of the, the things that comes up a lot of times is they say, if I acknowledge that hell exists, what about my mom? What about my granddad? What about my friend, my cousin? Somebody that I love, that I care about, that I know did not give themselves to God, that lived in rebellion to God. If I acknowledge this, if I say hell is real, then I'm acknowledging that that may very well be where they are. And that's a hard thing to accept. It's a very hard thing to accept. But I want us to understand one thing. What we choose to believe about this doesn't change what's true. So we can deny it in our own minds all day long and want to believe hell's not real. And therefore, in my mind, I've saved every single one of my loved ones and no one's going to be in hell. But that belief doesn't change truth. You know why? Because it's not your world, and it's not my world. It's God's world. Does God have the right to create a place called heaven and a place called hell? He's God. Does God have a right to say those who believe in me and follow me will be saved, and those who rebel against me will spend eternity in damnation with Satan? Does God have a right to do that? He's God. Of course he has a right to do that. What we choose to believe about it doesn't change the truth. And so I want to ask you to be willing to do the hard thing and to acknowledge the truth. And you and I are not the judge of who's going to spend eternity there. God is the judge. All we can do is make the best decision that we can make for us based upon the information God has given us in his book. If the Bible is true, we've got to acknowledge this reality. But the flip side of that coin is we also acknowledge that God has created a wonderful place called heaven for those that live for him. John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. If the Bible is true, then that means that Jesus ascended back up into heaven, preparing a place in eternity for you and for me and for every other person in this world that would give their life to him. Just as God extended grace to Noah and his family in a world full of sin and iniquity, God has decided to extend grace to all mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's created a place in eternity for the saints to rest. Revelation describes it like this. Revelation 21 verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Now, I want us to think about this phrase, the former things are passed away, and think about it in a couple different ways. First of all, we need to acknowledge that the things that exist here that are physical, that are temporal, they are going to pass away. And too many people in this life live for the things that are here, not realizing that at some point they're going to die, or at some point all of this is going to be burned up and it's going to be for naught. What's going to exist and what's going to matter at the end of it all is not what we did or what we accumulated here, or the wealth that we had, or the, the power that we were able to acquire here, what's going to matter when it's all over is whether or not we're right with God. Because that's going to allow us to enter into that wonderful place of rest that we call heaven. But I want you also to recognize that the former things are passed away can be related in this way also. The pain that we feel in this life will be no more. The death and sorrow from the passing of a loved one that we feel in this life that causes us to strain and hurt and be in pain, pain will be taken away. The financial difficulties that we may experience, the relationship troubles that we may have, the different problems or issues that we run into in this physical life, it's going to pass away. And when we're there, it's going to be an, an amazing, wonderful existence if we're right with God if we play by his rules and don't try to make up our own. If the Bible is true, then we can't make up our own rules to get into heaven. We've got to follow his. If the Bible is true, then Jesus is the only way to be saved. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I want to ask you to think within yourself tonight very seriously. Sin is a choice to go against the things of God. It is the choice to commit wrong in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And so as you think about your life, can you acknowledge that at some point, at least once in the history of you, you did something against the will of God, something that you knew was wrong. And if you've done that, then you've sinned. And the reality is, if the Bible's true, then we know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And not one of us is immune from that. And yet too many people try to overcome what they acknowledge to be sin by outworking that sin, by doing enough good to overcome that sin. And yet Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says, We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I want you to think about God for a moment. This holy, wonderful creator of all things, it's his world, we're just living in it. That God is a holy, just, wonderful God. And our very best attempts at goodness and righteousness and holiness and all those things pale in comparison to what God is, the perfection that he is. And that's okay, we recognize that, we acknowledge that, it's sin. 
God sent Jesus for that express purpose. But I just want us to recognize that our best, our righteousness, is as a filthy rag before God. We can't pile up enough good deeds to outdo the bad ones. It's impossible. We can't be good enough. If we have sinned before God, then we have been separated from God. And we are in need of a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. And so there's a lot of things that people live for in this life. And if you're living for wealth, your wealth cannot save you. You can't take it with you. It can't buy you eternity. It can't buy you into heaven. Your wealth won't save you. If you live for health or for education or for hobbies and interests or pleasure and entertainment or any of those other things that are of this world, you live for those things, they can't and won't save you. What will save you is Jesus Christ. John 14 and verse 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We talk about the fact that our wealth and our pleasures and our joy and power and all the other things that people live for in this world can't save us. I want you to recognize something else in this statement. There's a lot of religions out there. There's a lot of good people, good, sincere-hearted people that are part of those religions, but I want you to hear me very clearly. And I'm going to honestly and sincerely in love try to tell you something that this verse is teaching. Hinduism will not save you. Buddhism will not save you. Islam will not save you. Judaism will not save you. Being an atheist certainly won't save you. Being an agnostic will not save you. Being on the fence and not deciding one way or the other about God will not save you. What will save you is Jesus Christ and giving your life to him. If the Bible is true, then we've got to accept this. If the Bible is true, we've got to acknowledge this. And it's not a popular thing to teach today because we live in a relativistic and pluralistic society and everybody should be able to believe what they want and do what they want. We're all okay. We're all just headed up different sides of the mountain to the same peak. We're all headed to the same place. That's the teaching today. But I want you to know that's not what Jesus taught. And if the Bible's true, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Faith placed anywhere else will not save you. Peter had the strength and the character and the courage to say as much in Acts 4 and verse 12 when he said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the only path. And so I'm asking you tonight, if you believe that the Bible is true, if you believe it's the inspired word of God, are you willing to say what Peter said, that Jesus is the way to salvation? Are you willing to give yourself to him. And that brings us to our final point this evening. If the Bible is true, then you need to make the choice tonight to serve him. Deuteronomy chapter 11, we go back to the Old Testament as Moses and the people are there at Mount Sinai and God is delivering the law to them. Moses comes down and he delivers this message from God to the people where he says, behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which ye have not known. You know what God was telling the people on that day as they made that Old Testament covenant? He said, you've got two paths you can go. One is filled with blessing. One is filled with cursing. He says, the way you achieve the blessing is by obeying me. It's my world. You're just living in it. 
If you'll play by my rules, I'll bless you. You know how they would have gotten the cursing? By rebelling against him. By playing by their own set of rules. By looking to other things, other gods, other places to save them instead of the one true and living God. And so they were presented with a choice that day. And we see in their history that sometimes they did well and it seems like they were making the right choice. And other times they weren't doing so well and they made about a lot of bad choices and God had to send somebody to save them. And eventually God stopped saving them as a country, as a nation, as a people. He let the 10 tribes essentially get absorbed back in and a very small remnants of the Jews were left by the time Jesus came. And Jesus came to bring salvation to all. But I want to point out another a part of that Old Testament history a few years later, as Joshua, uh, as Joshua was talking to the people at the end of his life. Now Moses began to lead them and they conquered Canaan. By the end of Joshua's life, they had conquered it. They had spread. Uh, they had divided that land out as an inheritance to the tribes. And Joshua stands up as an old man and he essentially reiterates the speech that Moses had given them from God so many years before. He said, if it seemed evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was looking out at a people and essentially saying, I'm about to be gone. I'm about to die. And you've got to make a choice. Blessing or a curse. The one true living God or something or someone else. You've got to decide. I skipped over it a second ago, but free will, this concept of free will, it's one of the greatest gifts that God has given to mankind. The greatest, obviously, being his son, Jesus, so we can't take that tear. But free will is one of the greatest gifts given to mankind. You know why? Because we're not just robots. We're not just controlled. There's not puppet strings. God doesn't want that from us. He wants us with our own mind, with our own will to choose him. That's what God has always wanted. He wanted Adam and Eve to do that in the garden. They failed. He wanted those the patriarchs to do that. He wanted the Israelites to do that. And he has wanted people since Jesus came for 2,000 years to do that. And guess what? He wants you and I today to do that, to make a choice who we're going to serve. And if the Bible is true, the right answer to that question of who you're going to serve has to be Jesus. It's time for you to choose. Revelation 3, 20 and 21 this is Jesus speaking in, to that church of Laodicea. And if you remember Revelation 3, the church at Laodicea, Jesus was giving a message to them about not being lukewarm, not riding the fence, be hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, I'm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And this is what he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. And I want you to know that tonight, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. And you need to acknowledge the fact that in what you have learned through this series, through your own study, through other messages that you have heard, through studying the scriptures, if you have learned that Jesus is the one true way, then you know that he wants you. He wants your life. He wants your heart and he's standing there and he's knocking and he's waiting and he's asking for you to answer that door and to let him in. But he's leaving the choice up to you because he's not going to override your free will. He's not going to take that control that he's giving you. He's asking you to give your heart and your life over to him. 
And the plan of salvation, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, is simple. Jesus laid it out for us while he was here. John 3, verse 16, what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You want to know how to start serving Jesus today? What you need to do if the Bible is true and you believe all this, you say, I want to accept Jesus. I want to follow him because I want that eternity in heaven. I want all those wonderful blessings. It starts with believing. You believe that Jesus is the son of God. You believe that he is real, that he came here, that he died on that cross for our sins. And do you believe that he's offering you that salvation, that he's knocking at the door right now asking you to answer because he is. If you believe that, then Jesus is also asking you not to hide that within yourself, but to be willing to shout it from the rooftop, to be willing to live that out. It's what we call confession. Matthew 10, 32, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. Verse 33 says, But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. A blessing and a curse. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. He's not going to make the choice for you. He's asking you to choose. Do you believe him? Are you willing to confess that belief? If you are, he's also asking that you change your life, that you stop living for yourself, but start living according to his rules, his principles, his righteousness. We call that repentance. It's a change. It's a turn. It's a willingness to start doing things differently for him. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We can't say in word that we believe in Jesus and then go live out a different life in our action. We have to be willing to give him our heart and to change the things that we do. And if we're willing to do all that, then Jesus has asked us to submit to him in baptism and allow his blood to wash our sins away. In Mark 16, 15 and 16, Jesus said, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Now why baptism, you ask? Is there something special, something holy about the water? No, it's just water. If you've got enough water, you can do it anywhere where there's enough water. The water is not the important part. It's the submission. You see, in that act of baptism, you are giving yourself over to God. You are releasing your control and giving it to him. You are asking him to save you. You are calling upon God in that moment of submission. And as Jesus died on that cross, your old sinful self dies. And as Jesus was buried in the ground in that tomb, you are buried in that water with him. And as Jesus rose from the grave three days later with new life, when you come up out of that water, you are given new life with him. A resurrection of spirit, of soul, a promise and a guarantee of an eternal place with him that's been prepared for you. And in that baptism, that act of going down into that water and coming back up in belief, in confession, in repentance, in submission to God, we are doing the things that Jesus himself has asked. We are opening the door. We are answering the door and letting Jesus sit. And when we do that, he saves us. And we have all the wonderful promises of eternity in heaven with him. So tonight we ask this question, if the Bible is true, then what now? I hope we've answered it. If you're here and you've already been baptized into Christ, make sure that you're continuing your life of confession and repentance, that you're making choices to serve him, 
But if you're here tonight and you have not been baptized into Christ, I ask you to consider, to seriously consider what we've talked about tonight. And if we can help you start your walk with Christ, we ask you to come sit on a front pew as we stand and sing. Thanks for joining our sermon series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.